Welcome, everybody. Brian and I are joined here by uh, by Sia Danishmand. Um, Sia is, is a urologist. Sia, um, uh, welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself, uh, and then we'll just we'll kick off. Sure, of course. Uh, this is Sia Danishman from uh, USC. I'm director of urologic oncology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Happy to be here. Thank you, guys. Now, Sia, we're doing actually a rising star series, but your your star has, has risen already. Right? So, <laughs> so this is an interlude. You're like, like, In between rising stars. Yeah, and this is like your like Alpha Centauri. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, unlike Brian, whose star, you have the Hubble Space Telescope. All right, right. All right. we get it. It's required for Brian and my star, but your star is up and bright. So uh. <laughs> the, the reason we wanted you to... Uh, we re- reason we wanted to uh, to talk to you today was we we were actually Brian wasn't there. I'm not sure, what were you doing, Brian? At that ASCO poster? So I was wondering. I was, not, no, sure. I was there, Tom. I was filming you. Yeah, oh yes, that's a good point. You were, weren't you? <laughs> so, see, ya. the key yeah. was you. We stumbled across something which I thought was really interesting, in that you were giving oral erdafitinib, which is an FGFR inhibitor to patients with really early urothelial cancer and you know erdofitinib is a drug which we sort of at the moment are giving third and fourth line to patients with fgfr alterations and it just said it struck me as being a really big leap to go into this early oral setting which you were happy to do in the first instant so i wanted to talk a bit about the logistics of how you move that into that setting and then secondly um, that actually there was some great activity. So maybe the best place to start would be the biology and the rationale of why it, why erdofitinib and FGFR inhibitor might work in non-muscular invasive bladder cancer. Right. So um, so we know you know this is a hot topic. FGFR three alterations in urothelial carcinomas. Uh, you know, as you said, it's been approved for metastatic setting in the third and fourth line settings. But uh, we know that these alterations are more common in earlier stage disease, actually, um, in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, up to maybe 40%, and in, in uh, low-grade tumors, actually, even up to 80%. So, um, so it's, it's a natural sort of uh, extension to start uh, seeing what the efficacy of these drugs are in the earlier stage disease. Why would it be higher in the earlier setting? You know, I'm not sure it's exactly known. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with its uh, uh, sort of aggressive uh, nature, but it's just you know, the alterations have for a long time known to be more prevalent in low-grade disease, for instance. They're more prevalent in luminal tumors. Is that right? There was that luminal yeah. one, luminal two, and it was sort of that luminal one. And there's always been this discussion about whether they were, um, they whether those were immunologically um, not very immune infiltrated. Do you know right. very much about the biology of that subgroup of patients? No, I, I don't actually. I, I just know, you know, I've been following the SEPGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors for quite some time and, and thought this was a really good target. And there's been a lot of activity in, in uh, this class of medication for use in, in not just non-muscle invasive, but also upper tract tumors where the alterations are um, thought to be higher than there in the bladder as well. So there was some activity there uh, with infragratinib in a, a trial that unfortunately closed recently, the PROOF 302 trial. Um, as adjuvant treatment. To describe what you did, and you had a very interesting trial design around how you've made assessments within the bladder. Yeah, sure. So uh, certainly not my design. This is uh, this is a uh, uh, Janssen um, uh, led uh, international multi institutional trial. It's a it's a phase two uh, study, 
And it's looking at the efficacy and safety of IRTA in, in BCG unresponsive uh, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients. So a lot of activity there in, in BCG unresponsive patients with intravesical therapies, uh, novel delivery mechanisms. But this is the first, as, as far as I know, um, oral medication used for this patient population. So it's a phase two study for patients uh, who have FGFR3 alterations. And the study is called the THOR2, T-H-O-R-2. Um, and, and so the interim um, results were presented at, at GU-ASCO. And, and there, there are three cohorts, and you know we can discuss those. And so, so what, what are those three cohorts? Okay, so so you know, patients were screened if they were BCG unresponsive. They were screened. Uh, the cohort one was the high risk non muscle invasive papillary tumor only, so no CIS, and they were uh, randomized between ertafitinib uh, versus versus investigator choice of an intravesical gemcitabine or or mitomycin. So that's that was cohort one. Uh, cohort two was the same, except uh, they also had CIS, and they went straight to ertafitinib, so no randomization. So cohort two got ertafitinib, 20 patients there, and that was exploratory endpoint of CR rates um, uh, seen at, at cycle three, day one, and cycle six, day one. So and the, and the key secondary was safety. Cohort three, uh, which opened as a, as a sort of a... a uh, sub-cohort uh, was looking at intermediate risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. These were low-grade, mostly low-grade uh, patients who are recurrent. And we left a marker lesion uh, in these patients after incomplete TUR. So we, we removed all the tumors and left one single marker lesion. Uh, no prior BCG requirement for these patients. And there was a cohort of 20 patients who went straight on to ertafitinib. Um, so, so that was an exploratory, yeah. Let's come to uh, that yeah. in a second. Let's start with something yeah. a bit more orthodox, if that's okay. So yeah, let's start with that BCG refractory population. You've got to randomize it. You've got that. There's a CIS cohort. Was that was it the CIS cohort that was presented at ASCO-GU? The, the cohort uh, one was uh, presented. Uh, the I'm, I'm sorry, the cohort two, the one that went straight to ertafitinib, uh, was, was presented. We didn't have enough patients for... Uh, the randomized part of it. So this is the straight uh, sort of phase two. Every every patient got uh, ertafitinib. These are early, early results. Uh, again, for the cohort two, there were 20 patients who went straight to ertafitinib, uh, no randomization, and we're looking at CR rates. And they and have those... CIS. Yes. Uh, correct. They, they, had, yeah. they had to have CIS, with or without papillary disease. And they so failed CIS was, was a must. Exactly. And that benchmark, so, you know, we talk about CR rates and we've had many podcasts on whether CR is a good endpoint here or but we feel it you know CR rates of 40% have been described and durable CR rates of perhaps you know more like 20% with pembrolizumab and we saw IL-15 super agonist where the results were you know more perhaps more durable at 40% and so right. we've we, we, and, and and what did you show in your cohort? So again, these are early results. Uh, the data cutoff was September 2022. So there were, there were only 10 patients for whom we had available data. Uh, this was presented by Jim Cato um, at uh, GUASCO, and I, I was one of the co-authors. But of the, of the 10 patients uh, receiving IRTA, uh, the median uh, follow-up from first dose was, was nine months. And there was, um, uh, at the first evaluation, the CR rate was essentially 100%. <laughs> this was cycle three, day one. 
so nine of nine evaluable patients at the second evaluations, which was which was cycle six, day one, it was 75%. So six of the eight evaluable patients. Uh, so again, really early results were very, very encouraging um, and uh, so far. CR defined as? Uh, no no uh, tumor present. So these Just, were um, cytology negative. Yes, cystoscopy okay. negative. Yeah. Any compulsory biopsies? Yeah. Yeah, uh, biopsies are required at the six-month um, uh, uh, time point, and, and not all those are available yet. But not at the three-month? Not at the three-month, correct. Okay. Three so months, it's yeah. fair to say that at that six-month time point, you're about 75% CR. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so far. I mean, again, it's, it's a low number of patients, but, but certainly very encouraging uh, preliminary res results here. Yeah. And... and you have 10 more patients that were treated that you yeah, don't have results yet. And if exactly. a, 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 let's say it holds up, I mean, 75 at six months is a great number, you know, relative to benchmarks. What are there further plans to expand? Do you, do you know, or can you say, or what's going to happen from there? I, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, that the, the main cohort is going to be that cohort one, um, sure. uh, the cohort two was just looking at it in, with a CIS. Uh, so, the papillary cohort's going to be interesting. That the Erda versus um, investigate a choice of gemcitabine, and that's a two-to-one randomization to to, to Erda. The, the CIS cohort has a, a more well-worn regulatory path, right? With exactly Embro and such. So that that's why I asked. I was just curious. So yeah, just, yeah. To see when can we expect to see something robust? Because you're not going to get FGA approval off twenty patients. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, this is obviously ongoing uh, international study. And, and, you know, we, we hope to have uh, a lot more results to present next year. But I, I think in, in two years time, we should be completed with this with this cohort. Uh, it's going well. It's um, there's a lot of uh, interest and activity. And, and there's actually new newer studies uh, uh, coming on, which which we can discuss as well. And how about just for the, finish up with this cohort? How about tolerability? Um, yeah, a great tough drug. Yeah. Exactly. It, it can be, but uh, fairly well tolerated. Um, most common treatment related uh, adverse events, as, as, as you know, are the dry mouth, the diarrhea. You know, most patients get hyperphos. Uh, that's typically not um, uh, symptomatic, um, but some dyskusia and stomatitis and things like that, the, the nail disorders we, we certainly see. Uh, those are all in a 40 to 50% range. Uh, very few patients are more than grade three uh, for, for any of them. It's just basically one, one patient, 10% uh, having any you know, grade three uh, adverse events. But nobody's so well tolerated for toxicity. Nobody no, not, not in no patient. Yeah. Correct. Not in this, not in this study yeah. so far. Yeah. And so that's then, so that looks promising. With a randomized cohort, we have to wait and see. We saw some Pembro data recently in that cohort too. And I think, as Brian said, it's, it's more confusing, but it's fair to say that this is unexpectedly, not unexpectedly, better than expected um, data yeah. really early, but it's not clear how you're moving that forwards. But you said you're expanding, but it's not crystal clear what that looks like. Then there was this second cohort, and you talked about that before, where you left some of the tumor behind. Just describe what exactly happened there, how many patients you got, and what the results were. Yeah, so we're really excited about this. You know, as I mentioned before, the FGFR3 alterations are seen more commonly in low-grade tumors. So it was natural to start looking at it in, in this intermediate risk uh, population. So, um, um, so in, you know, the... 
uh, cohort, uh, sorry, this was the cohort three. So interim analysis, this was added on as an additional cohort. Uh, so intermediate risk was defined as any patient with recurrent low-grade tumors and, and most of the patients that had exactly that. Now, this is a patient population which we generally treat with just repeat TURs um, and uh, maybe intravesical chemotherapy or maybe just observation. So this was a sort of perfect core to look at this. Um, uh, again, same drug, same, same duration. Everything was exactly the same. But no, no CIS, to be clear. No CIS. No CIS. Yeah. 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 That, that would, yeah, that would make them high grade. So uh, yeah. high risk population. So this Got was it. intermediate risk. And, and nine of the 10 patients had uh, TA tumors. Um, you, um, you can also have a small high-grade TA, but not, not um, anything more than three centimeters uh, per AUA, um, uh, uh, AUA sort of guidelines, uh, risk categorization. So patients got ERTA, and, and so we went in and re resected all these tumors and, and left this one marker lesion behind uh, to see the efficacy of the drug. And then we would look at a, a six-week, uh, really early cystoscopy and, and make sure that, you know, things are not progressing as we didn't expect it to, but for safety, you know, we're looking uh, very quickly. Uh, and then again, at three months. And, and th this was fascinating. We were taking pictures of these tumors. Um, uh, and this is a well-known sort of study design in, in uh, non-muscle invasive platycans, especially early on where marker lesions were left behind. And uh, early on, we saw tumors disappear, and we'd sort of heard about other similar responses around the world. Uh, so uh, we presented the first sort of 10 or 11 enrolled patients uh, at, at GUASCO. So before we get to the results, I, I had not heard about designs of leaving marker lesions behind, but you implied that <laughs> that's been done before. I was I'm just wondering if you would run into <laughs> problems with your IRB or a patient saying, wait a minute, doc, you're leaving cancer behind. Yeah, great question. And, and uh, of course, you know, uh, certainly something you need to explain to IRBs. Uh, it helps that, you know, 20, 30 years ago when drugs like mitomycin and um, all the intravesical chemotherapy drugs were being tested, they were being tested with marker lesions, uh, many of them with marker lesions in, inside. Well, there's always these windows of opportunity. You know, we, we scope the patient and, and we see tumor and the patient's waiting for the TORVT. Uh, that's an opportunity, for instance, to look at efficacy of a drug in that window. The other is leaving something behind that we know where the progression and growth rates are very, very um, slow. It's akin to, you know, watching a, a, a great group one prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we think it's safe. Uh, the progression rates are 5%. The, the recurrence rates are high, but the, the progression rates are extremely low. So in fact, you know, one of the criteria was that we, as investigators, uh, would would assess the progression rates to be to be less than less than five percent. So, and I guess because so you were you looking know, at six weeks, you could ask yourself exactly what what bad could happen in six weeks, right? And the answer exactly, is five. exactly. Yeah. That's sort of your additional safety check is you know another cystoscopy in six weeks, which oftentimes these patients are waiting for uh, you know that long a period, especially in the UK, but. Don't yeah. tell Tom. Um, yeah, that, suggests, so, that was an unnecessary <laughs> dig, to be honest. I love <laughs> it. I love it, actually. <laughs> okay, no, that makes sense. It makes so, sense. Yeah. So, so, you know, we deem it to be safe. And, and uh, you know, so that's how we explain it to the patient. And, and plus, there's a growing body of uh, uh, experts, I guess, uh, around, the, around the world who think that surveillance for some patients is even um, uh, uh, feasible for, for this population. So is this like watching a long, boring film? 
you know, you're sort of sitting there <laughs> and, and you're, you're going in from time to time. You're expecting I, not much to happen. And suddenly you look in and think, oh, my God, where has it gone? What was it? What, right, is that, right. Is that what happened? Well, like, right. Except, yeah. except it's not boring. Uh, bre- no, uh, I'm not saying if we, film's boring. If I we... expecting a long boring film. <laughs> you know, exactly. This one wasn't a long boring. This is a, this is a, a big, you know, this had a sort of a, a saving prior rival. Um, Right, Private Ryan. Private Ryan sort of D-Day <laughs> moment at the beginning where suddenly everything disappears and there's drama at the opening scene. Is that Because I'm guessing you weren't expecting these to disappear, or were you? No, I, I have to be honest with you. I absolutely did not expect this. I thought maybe it'll get smaller, but this was absolute disappearance of the tumor. So then you think, okay, well, the first one, I don't know what happened, but that, that's, that can't be real. <laughs> and then the second one happens, and you're like, okay, there's something happening here. And, and the third one, and you hear other, um, you see pictures and in, in, in other centers are having similar experiences. This is, this is really fascinating. Tell, tell us this, this, this is Humor fast. results, did you mention? Yeah, so let me just tell you, like, I think I mentioned, you know, the inclusion criteria of these patients with the, with the uh, grade one TA tumors, uh, no previous CIS, risk of progression less than 50%, less than 5%. Um, and then, of course, you know, we, we tested them and they have to have FGFR3 alterations. So uh, p- patients receive this continuous ERDA six milligrams once a day with no titration, 28-day cycles. Uh, and then we would look very, very closely uh, at these patients. And so of the um, uh, 11 patients for whom we have, I'm sorry, 11 patients were enrolled, um, 10 of the 11 received the erdafitinib. The median follow-up is, again, fairly short at le- just less than six months. And the median um, uh, time for erda was, was 2.9 months. Um, six of the eight evaluable patients by the data cutoff had a CR. Um, and then one of the patients had a PR. So... Uh, you know, the CR rate's about 75%. Again, it's early. Um, but, you know, seeing the tumor disappear in front of your eyes is, is pretty, um, pretty remarkable. So where'd you go with this? Because I guess there's, there's no real, this is biologically really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm guessing there's some great translational science to come out of this cohort. Exactly, but it, yeah. But in reality, doing cystoscopy and cutting it out is still easy, and most of these patients don't die of bladder cancer, and no one wants to have long-term erdafitinib. So what do you do with this? Absolutely. You, 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 you hit the nail on the head. So, so yeah, we're not going to be using the, the toxic drug to, to tr- constantly try to get rid of it. But there's a lot of other applications, uh, Tom, I think. One of them is having high volume upper tract uh, urothelial, uh, low-grade urothelial carcinoma. If we test those, Instead of uh, you know doing nephrouretorectomies, um, we can use uh, this drug uh, to get rid of most of the tumors and perhaps make them more amenable to endoscopic uh, management once they shrink. Um, we could use this drug intermittently for the patients who have high volume intermediate risk disease. You know, doing TRBT on high volume uh, low grade tumors in the bladder can be a daunting experience for the patient. Constantly going back to the um, yeah. operating room. I was going to ask, of course. do you think you need continual erdafitinib, right? Is this a, a true CR, like you've killed all the cancer cells or, or, or as you pers- implied, you could use it intermittently? Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it, it gets rid of the tumor, but the biology of the bladder and the, and the you know, uh, yeah. field defects, they'll appear again. And you, you could use it intermittently if, if the results are this quick. But the real exciting part of this is that erdafitinib is now being placed in a in a long sustained release format in a in a device uh, that's uh, fondly known as the pretzel, 
uh, you know, we have experience with these sunrise trials with Janssen mm-hmm. uh, putting gemcitabine in these pretzels called a TAR-200. And now there's a trial TAR-210 where ertifidinib is placed in the pretzel, being placed in the bladder uh, for um, uh, six weeks at a time. I'm sorry, three weeks at a time. And that there's sustained release of the ertifidinib within the bladder. And there's a lot of excitement there because you're not going to get the systemic toxicity and hopefully get the same sort of efficacy. And how long does the drug delivery last? Three weeks. Three weeks. But you'd have to get a new dose every three weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really simple to uh, remove and replace. Um, in the in the office, uh, I, I was uh, easy one for of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, but easier than easier than uh, taking the patient to the operating room. Three so, weeks uh, might be enough as well. Why would three weeks not be enough? Well, exactly. I just had to go in every. If I'm a patient, I have to go in every three weeks and get my pretzel replaced. No, but you might. But one might one three week pause might be enough, Brian. Well, yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking. Is it require oh. continuous drug delivery? Or not. It does. I mean, again, this is going to be because it's it's um, it's a it's it's a phase one only because the drug is obviously well known, but the delivery mechanism is yeah. is unknown. So it's it's a phase one. We're going to quickly move into phase two and possibly even three with with this uh, with this pretzel with the Erda. So so that's where I think the natural extension of this drug and sort of the mechanism is going to be maybe upper tract delivery. Uh, for for both low grade and high grade uh, tumors that are large volume, we don't want to be doing surgery and removing kidneys, and removing bladders for these recurrent low grade tumors. Last well, question. Oh, you go first, Brian. <laughs> well, I was going to ask. You know, we get some patients who are elderly and comorbid, and you know, we, you're kind of just managing them endoscopically in the bladder, which we all agree is less than ideal. But you're sometimes pushed in that corner. I, I could see an application there as well. So just sort of debulk, especially in more symptomatic patients. Is that realistic? Exactly. Absolutely. I think it's very realistic. You know, the symptom control, basically, in those in those patients, you know, they they do bleed. Uh, They have they have um, uh, irritating voiding symptoms. So absolutely, I see application in that that setting as well. So FGFR inhibition in um, in advanced disease um, and then platinum refractory disease, uh, single arm study, 40 percent response rate. Um, the Thor randomized trial in that space we're excited about. But FGFR inhibition is at the moment seen like it's seen like a sort of a, a last or a second to last throw of the dice. What you're describing is actually the complete opposite. You're describing yeah. that actually it might be most active super early. And actually you yeah. described upper tract disease. You described slow release with the pretzel. Um, do you think there's opportunity for adjuvant, an adjuvant study, a positive ad? Is it going to be, is it, is it, is that a possibility too, or is that a step too far for us? It is. No, I don't think it's too far, but you know, we, we tried very hard with proof 302 and the adjuvant study in the, in the upper track where we thought that the FGFR3 uh, alterations are going to be seen in about 40% of patients. The accrual worldwide was very, very slow uh, for various reasons, um, and most of which was we we were not seeing the alterations that we were um, the 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 hit rate was far less than the forty percent we'd hoped for. Uh, the randomization process was difficult, so I think adjuvant studies are very difficult, and and you know using molecular markers to to stratify patients, um, but certainly not out of the question. I mean, in 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 uh, uh, earlier state disease, uh, certainly we can we can think of that. So, so we would agree that Sunrise program with the pretzel 
and with different drugs and different agents with local. That sounds to me like a, a really exciting new avenue for the future. It is. And those are the four studies in, in, uh, that, that are ongoing around the world globally. And, and, and uh, each one is a combination in various stages of disease uh, spanning from non-muscle invasive all, all the way to um, you know, locally advanced disease uh, with use of citrolimab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor. So we're really going to see the individual components of, of the treatments coming together um, and, and see you know, the, the efficacy of this drug uh, alone and in combination. So my last question, and you kind I of alluded. I thought you just had a last question. <laughs> no, 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 that was my me, second to last question. I about two last questions. Tom, don't give me <laughs> grief about asking too many questions. I feel I get a lot of plaques here. So, I've got to tell you. So, yeah, last question. And here we are. And how many patients, quiet, how many patients did you screen? You mentioned these small 10 to 20 patient cohorts. Do you have an idea of the denominator, i.e., because you said it's about 40% FGF, should be FGF altered, but did that turn out in terms of screening for trials? Because sometimes it's different than, say, a retrospective series. Yeah, you know, the final numbers are coming in, but uh, and I was one of the co-PIs with Monty Pell on, on this uh, proof study, but it was it, it was approaching a thousand patients. There was a ton of interest and activity in in trying to screen patients for this adjuvant study globally, and and so we did a great job at, at the screening. Uh, but oftentimes uh, we found, you know, most of those, those screenings turn out to be to be negative. Uh, this is, again, for adjuvant study and upper tract uh, sort of advanced disease. But how about disease, your studies you disease. described, the, the 10, 20 patients? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just curious. Uh, this, yeah, yeah. This was about 40, uh, 30 to 40% for the um, okay. non-Muslim invasive. And then for the low grade, for the cohort three, that low grade was 80%. So wow. it's much higher hit rates. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's that was magic. See ya. <laughs> Dude, this has been great i think we're gonna see you soon right yeah we hope so we hope so looking forward to seeing you guys soon somewhere see around the world but uh <laughs> i think you you guys are joining the urology uh world and i'm gonna give you cystoscopes and teach you how to how to look at these things yourself we're on our way there it's only a matter of time we're being thrown out of oncology we've got to find somewhere to go right <laughs> see you soon thanks so much all right take care bye -bye. guys thanks so much take care all right take care bye-bye